Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Have you ever thought that, like, sometimes religion gets a little weird? Anybody ever felt that way? Just kind of like, just a little goofy. Um, where, like, these kinds of things. Um, it happens every once in a while where you see in a magazine or in a newspaper um, something like this. That... The Virgin Mary has appeared in a pancake. You ever, you ever seen that stuff? If, do you recognize? That's, that's her head right there, and she's holding little baby Jesus right there. That's, that's just kind of weird, you know? And, or this other one, um, the face of Jesus in a grilled cheese sandwich. You ever, you know, every once in a while, these things come up, and you just kind of go, that's just like goofy. That's just, just kind of weird, but it, it, it just kind of gets lumped into this whole thing of religion. There's all this stuff that gets added into it, and, and sometimes it just gets a little weird. And, and you wonder, you know, what is this all about? I mean, like, Jesus in a grilled cheese sandwich, what is that? First of all, how do they know that's him? You know, I mean, how do they know it's not like some guy named Fred, you know? And, and, and secondly, if Jesus appears in a grilled cheese sandwich, what am I supposed to do with that information, you know? It's just weird stuff, and, and that stuff comes up all the time. Um, and, and sometimes it gets, sometimes religion gets superstitious, where you do things, and, and people do things, but have no idea why. You know, like we, we light a candle, or, or burn some incense, or, or, or bow down in a certain way, or do certain things, but we don't really know why we do it. It's just, you're supposed to do it, because that's part of the religion, and, and, and if you don't, the fear is that God's going to somehow strike you dead or something. And so you just do this stuff mostly because you're afraid of God. And, and that's the kind of stuff that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks about losing my religion. We're talking about all the stuff that tends to get added on and, and gets in the way and just clouds a very, very simple, straightforward message. Um, and and even, even good stuff, like sometimes it can be, become toxic, when, when religion becomes all about performance and, and, and all about conformity to, to everybody else around me or, or strict obedience that I don't even know why, but I, I just got to do it kind of a thing, and then religion gets really, really toxic. And, and sometimes even, even good stuff, even the right kinds of things actually can do more harm than good when we don't understand what it's all about. Why do we baptize? Why do we, why do we serve communion? Why do we do these things? They're good things. They're right things. But we do them more out of ritual and tradition than really out of an understanding. And so that's the kind of stuff that Paul was writing about when he wrote his letters, um, and, and particularly the letter that he wrote to this area called Galatia, which is actually a large area. It's a number of churches. And this is, letter was circulated among all of those churches because of the kinds of stuff that were going on in those churches. Religious stuff, but it was taken away from the message. And for the first couple of weeks now, we've been looking at this, um, this letter that Paul's been saying, all these things that you've added on to, all these things that you keep insisting on that are a part of it, that are not a part of it, you've got to get rid of that stuff. But now the second half of the letters we're going to get into today is, okay, so then when I do that, how do I move forward? Well, then how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? Because we all know there are some things that we, we should do. Um, but why do we do them? And, and that's what the second half of this letter is all about. And it's really what Paul says in it. The key to it all is the making the difference between religion and relationship. And I hear people say that all the time, you know, about Christianity. Well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And yet they live as if it's a religion. 
They say, but it doesn't, still doesn't look like a relationship. They say it's a relationship, but it's still a religion. They're going through the rituals and traditions and all these things, and they're missing the point. And so Paul says, okay, kind of push that stuff off to the side. Let's get down to what really, really matters. And then here's how you live in response to that. And the key to it all is making this transition from religion to relationship. And so when we pick up his, his letter here in uh, Galatians chapter 3, if you want to follow along, beginning in verse 21, uh, he talks about this. Why do we do these things? Why, why do we have the law? Why do we have scripture? Why do we have all these things? And that's what he starts to talk about here. He says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as heirs are under age, they're no different than slaves, though they own the whole estate. They are subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by their fathers. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he has also made you heirs. The bottom line that Paul's saying in all of this is, God's great desire for your life and mine is not that we would perform the right kinds of acts. Not that we would perform right actions. His real grand desire for us is that we would become the right kind of people. That that it's not just the things, the traditions, the behaviors, all of these things that you do. It's, It's who you become. And that's why in this section, he talks so much about the different types of relationships, slaves and sons and, 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 and um, guardians and trustees and all that kind of stuff. Because it's not about the religion. It's not about the things that you do, although they are good things. But understand why you do them, that it comes out of a relationship. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between religion and relationship? He says, because that's the key. That's the key. Because now it's no longer religion. Now it's relationship. And that changes everything. And one of the first changes it makes is, he says that it changes how I relate to Scripture. Changes how I relate to God's Word. I think we would all agree, if we went around this room, that there are certain activities that we should engage in, certain habits that we ought to develop, um, certain disciplines that we should give ourselves to. Um, Giving, uh, reading my, my Bible, quiet time with God, um, worshiping together with God's people, those are all really good and important things. 
And they're, they're necessary things. But, but if the things in themselves get in the way and we lose the relationship, then they actually become self-defeating. He says what they're intended for is for relationship. And, and you know that's true because in every human relationship, you know there are certain activities and behaviors that you should engage in that will enhance the relationship and certain things that you should not do because they'll harm the relationship. So he says, when you approach God in this way, out of a relationship, yes, there are still things to do and not do, but not because of, who, of what they are, but because of where they lead, that they, they either enhance or they take away from relationship. And every relationship that you have works that way. When I, do, when I counsel couples or when I do premarital counseling with couples, um, if I'm going to perform a ceremony for a couple, I do six weeks of premarital counseling with them. And we talk about the kinds of activities and behaviors that will build into your relationship and make your marriage good and strong. And the kinds of things you should refrain from because they'll, they'll undermine your relationship. Now, we talk about those things, but it's not like we're setting down a whole code of ethics and rules and regulations. You know, it's not like the, you know, the Ten Commandments of marriage. You know, thou shalt honor the date night. Thou shalt eat at home every six nights. But on the seventh night, thou shalt take your wife out. Okay? It's not a commandment. It's a good idea, but it's not a commandment. It's something that helps the relationship. But you don't do it because you got to. Make sense? There's not these things. It's not like thou shalt not bear false witness. Unless, of course, the question is, does this dress make me look fat? Okay? Then you got an exemption. Okay? There's all, if, if you approach your relationship just as a set of do's and don'ts and oughts and ought nots, then you miss the point because all of those things are intended to build relationship. And that's why Jesus had this constant run-in with the religious leaders of his day. That's why Paul wrote this letter because of the religious people of his day. Because they missed the point of all this. The scriptures that they had, Jesus said, Jesus said things like, you search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have life. And yet the scriptures point to me and you won't come to me and receive life because you've made, in essence, what he's saying is you've made the scriptures the end in themselves and they're not. They're the road signs. They're the direction. They're the ones point me in, point you in the direction of me. In fact, the scriptures of Jesus day and of Paul's day is, is, is the Torah, it's, it's what we now consider the first five books of the old, what we call the Old Testament. But they didn't have a New Testament. They had the Torah. And, and it was, it's the law. It's the scriptures. And he said, the problem is that you've made the law the end in itself. And the law can't do what you need it to do. In fact, the word Torah, literally, it comes, the root of the word has to do with to throw something. But not just to throw stuff around. To throw something in a specific direction. To hit a target. That's what the Torah is. It means that this is the direction. This is the way to go. It is to point us to God. That's what the law is all about. And he says, if you try to do anything else with it, it's going to fail because it can't, it wasn't meant to fulfill that purpose. That's what Paul writes about. He says, if a law could be given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. If the law could do that, then it would have done it. But it can't because the law can't change your heart. If you go tooling down the 680 freeway at 75 miles an hour and you're just cruising along and all of a sudden you see a car that is painted black and white, what do you do? You slow down. Why? Because you want to be a better person? 
No. Because you want the cop to smile at you? No. The only reason you slow down is you don't want to get fined. You don't want to pay the You don't want to be getting a ticket. Because the law can't change your heart. The law can't make you a better person. It can just tell you this is the speed limit. <laughs> this is the direction to go. And that's why Paul keeps insisting on this. If you use the law, if you use the scriptures for the wrong reasons, it's not going to get you where you want to go. Scripture, the law, has always been intended to point us to God, to point us to Christ. That was it. In fact, Paul goes on. He says, the law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we might be justified, not by the law, he says, but by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The message paraphrase puts it this way, and it really picks up on something. It says, the law was like those Greek tutors who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure that the children will really get to the place they set out for. What he's using, he's using, he's using a very technical term, and it was actually a job description. In, in wealthy Greek homes of the time, and in Greek culture, there was a specific servant. It was the pedagogos. And, and his only job, he was usually a wise and old, um, long-time trusted servant. And his one job from, from the ages of 6 to 16 was to get that child to school and back. To make sure he didn't cut classes. Make sure that he did his lessons. He wasn't the teacher. Not even really a tutor. It was just his job to make sure that he got to the place where he would learn what he needed to learn. And that's the term that he uses here when some of your translations might say, um, might say a, um, guardian or trustee. And what he's talking about is this very specific job. And, and when he's using this example for him, he says, this is, understand the relationship. The law is like that guy that we look to to get our kids to school, to make sure they get there safely, to make sure they don't cut their classes, to make sure that they get home and do their lessons and get their homework done. He says, that's the law. That has always been its intent from the very, very beginning. Not that it would be an end in itself, but it would be the guardian. It would be the pedagogos to get us to where we need to be. And where we need to be is faith in Christ. And as long as you perform religion, then it's all just about fulfilling the law. And the law can't get you by itself where it needs to get you. It needs to get you to Christ, to a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as long as you stay in religion, you're missing the point. When you make the transition from religion to relationship, you begin to understand why. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, if I can't do it in the right way, then I shouldn't read my Bible. You know, and if I can't come in the right spirit, then I shouldn't go to church, or I shouldn't be in a, in a small group, or all these other things. No, you should do those. Those are disciplines. You stretch yourself. You give to some, just like you needed to do your homework in school, even though you didn't want to, but you had to know the material. So we don't not do it because we can't do it in the right frame of mind. We do it, and then we get our mind in the right frame. In relationship, he says, that's what it's about. It changes the way that I relate to God's word. Not only that, it changes the way that I relate to other people. Again, he uses another relational example. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He says, okay, now, 
when it comes to your relationships with one another, your brothers and sisters, your siblings. You're not competitors. You're companions. Now, if, if I'm in religion, see, religion brings about a lot of sibling rivalry. And in religious circles, it's called denominations. <laughs> That's what it is. We have the right way of doing it. We have the right truth. We have the corner on it. We know the right way. Those other churches, yeah, they're okay, but we have it right. The way that we worship is the only right way to worship. We have some churches that, in, in the United States, some denominations where there is no musical instruments allowed because that's, that's, that's taking away from true reverent worship of God. Someone from one of those kind of churches came here, they would say, you're doing it all wrong. You're doing it all. You're too loud. You're too, you, you clap too much. You know, you got way too many instruments up there and, and, and the lights and that whole thing. That You just got it all wrong. That's not worship. That's not reverent enough. And some of us who love that style of worship would go to one of their churches and say, this is the driest, boringest, most lifeless thing I've ever been to in my life. Because there's no right way to worship except in spirit and in truth. But see, when we're in religion, we're competing to be better than everybody else in denominations and even individually. I don't know if you ever did this. I grew up with uh, three one brother, two sisters, four of us kids. And I was the oldest. And uh, one of the things that we would do from time to time, uh, not for very long because we figured it was a waste of time, but we would do coloring contests. You know, we'd each get a page from the coloring book and we'd all, you know, color the page. And then we would bring it to mom and dad to judge. And they would say, oh, they're all so beautiful. Yeah, 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 but which one's the best? Well, you know, it's really hard to judge because they're all so beautiful. Yeah, 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 but which one's the best? Well, there really is no best. They're all the same. They're just all so beautiful. And in my mind, I knew because I was the oldest that mine was the best anyway. They just didn't want to admit it, you know? <laughs> that sibling rivalry is sometimes what we bring when we're in religion. We start comparing who's better at it, whose is the best, whose is the best understanding of Scripture, whose is the best worship whose is the best whatever that's where religion lets us and 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 what he's saying is no 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 it's about relationship and it's not only a relationship with god it's now your relationship with each other and it's not a competition you are brothers and sisters and there are varieties of ways of worshiping there are a variety of ways of, of understanding scripture but as long as we are on the essentials in agreement that is the unity with my, that is that what binds us and we are brothers and sisters we're part of his family and so we are to focus focus on the things that unite us and not find the things that divide us religion tends to divide relationship is all about uniting and that's the point that he's trying to make it here. We do it, we do it denominationally, we do it individually. We compare ourselves with somebody else's walk of faith. But your journey of faith is not the same as mine. See, it's real easy for me on Tuesday morning, 6 30, because I'm an early riser. And I'm here for Tuesday morning prayer. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with all these other people? They just aren't as dedicated as I am. They can't get up in the morning to spend some time with Jesus, you know. We're going to have to pray for those people, you know. But some of you just can't get up past, you know, earlier than 10 o'clock, you know. And if you do, you're just like useless anyway. <laughs> See, the point is your walk and your relationship is going to be different than mine. We're all on the same journey, but we are at different places in that journey. And our job is not to compare ourselves with how we're doing against somebody else. Our job is to encourage each other along. 
and to be open and honest about that. Another thing that happens on an individual level is, is we kind of get into, and, and I think people in leadership are really susceptible to this, um, this, this addiction to, um, of approval. That, that we want people to look at us and say, oh, he's doing it well. He, he's good at that. Oh, man, he's, he's to be admired. And I'll be honest, and, and it's, it's embarrassing to admit it, but there are times, you know, even as I'm preaching, in the back of my mind, in some deep, dark recess that I can't get to, there's this feeling like, okay, how's it going? They laughed at that joke. Okay, I'm, I'm on a roll here, you know? Oh, they didn't get that illustration at all. Oh, man, I'm just dying up here, you know? There, I, I hate to even admit that, but there is the, in the back of my mind, there is this need for approval. And I think we all have it to some degree or another. We want people to think well of us. When you move from religion to relationship, you begin to understand the only person that really matters is Jesus. And he loves you just the way that you are, 100%. See, when I understand that, when I understand relationship, when I understand my relationship with God and my relationship with other people, then I can let down my guard a little bit easier. Then I can be a little bit more honest and talk about that voice in the back of my head, you know. (laughs) And instead of trying to make somebody perform the way I want them to, I can, without agenda, try and find ways to help them grow. I tell you, one of the hardest things as a pastor is how do, you, how do you move people along? How do you get people to take those steps that you know are good for them and you know if they follow and, and do that, it will be good for them and it will make them better in their relationship with God and their relationship with other people? How do you do that without doing it out of guilt? How do you help people see that what God has for them is the very, very best life possible? And if you live in obedience to his word, it is for your benefit because it's the way that God designed you to live. It's the hardest thing in the world. And I can't do it. But it's my constant prayer. God, would you help people see this is the thing they've been longing for. This is what what you want for them. This is what you designed them to live like. He says, in relationship, I'm free to enjoy community. Equality with each other. He says, there is neither Jew, now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That all of those labels, all of those distinctions, all of those ways in which we use to see how we fit in the pecking order and how we're doing compared to everybody else, he says, those are all eliminated now. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, the Jews were the chosen people. But they weren't chosen to walk around saying, I'm chosen. They were chosen to bring God's message to the world. That's what they were chosen for. And he says, now in Christ, that has been accomplished. And now there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no religious distinctions. There's neither slave nor free. There's no social barriers anymore. Now, did that mean there were no slaves at that time? There still were, yes. But he's saying, in terms of your relationship with God, all that social structure, that's done away with. There is neither male nor female. Now, are there still no genders? Yes, there's genders. But he's saying that is not the way that we relate to one another. In Christ, we are all one. And all those distinctions, and and believe me, in a patriarchal society, that was huge. I mean, some people read and they say, oh man, you know, Paul, he was just like, man, he was just down on women. He was the most liberating of all. 
Because he said, all of those distinctions, all those ways that we try to classify other people, all those labels we put on them, all those ways that we use to judge how we stand against everybody else, he says, in Christ, that's all done away with. It changes fundamentally the way that we relate to each other. When you move from religion to relationship, it changes everything. Not only that, it changes the way that we relate to God. And this is important. And he uses another relationship analogy. He says, so... Think of it this way. As long as heirs are underage, they are no different from slaves, though they own the whole estate. See, in religion, I relate to God out of guilt and fear, like a slave. See, a slave has no standing. A servant has, has, has nothing except good performance, and they constantly live in fear that if they displease the master, there's a chance of a beating or something worse. If they don't perform like they're supposed to, there's going to be hell to pay. You know, there's just, that's, and he says, we live with that mentality, then we are living in a religion. And he says, now, if you look from the outside between a slave and an underage minor child, you would look at them and you would say, their lives are pretty much the same. They don't get to decide what they want to do. They get told what to do. Both of them do. They have no control over their future. It's, it's all being set out for them. They have no authority. They just have to do what they're told and, and perform what they're told to perform. If you look from the outside, he said, you would not be able to distinguish between a slave and a son. But there's a fundamental difference. And the difference is the relationship. Because a slave has no standing, no relationship. And at any moment is in danger of losing what he's got. But a son will always be a son. A daughter will always be a daughter. No matter what it looks like on the outside, there's a fundamental difference in the relationship. And I think a lot of people, a lot of very religious people relate to God as if they are slaves to him. When we're meant to relate to him as a son or a daughter. Because of Christ, the relationship has changed. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Two really important words there. Redeem and adoption. Redemption and adoption. The one has to do with, um, with the freeing from slavery. There would be, if, if a slave owner or someone else saw in someone worth and value they could pay a redemption price. It would be the price of that person because that person was really considered to be property. And what they could do is if they saw favor in that person or decided that, they, that he was worthwhile, they could go to the temple, and this was in Greek culture, they could go to the temple of the gods, they could pay the redemption price, and a declaration would be made that now this man has been bought and set free. He is no longer a slave. He is a free man. And by paying that redemption price, buy his freedom. Or someone could buy that freedom for him. And then no longer would he ever be allowed to be put to slavery because now he is a freeman, just like everybody else. He is an equal among all other free men. It was an incredible thing. But he takes it a step further. He says, it's not just the redemption to free us. It's an adoption of sons and daughters. Because now, not only are we made free, that we don't have to do what we're supposed to do. He says, now we are made free to be who we were meant to be. And that's even a greater freedom. We are meant to be his children, his sons, his daughters. 
And if you find yourself relating to God in such a way that it feels more like slavery than it does sonship, feels more like servitude than it does being a daughter, he says, you're missing something here. You're missing something. And it shows itself out, I think, sometimes when we go to prayer and we feel like we somehow have to talk God into giving us what we're asking Him in prayer. Lord, you know how, how hard I try to faithfully follow you. You know that I give myself to I do this, I do that. You know, so would you look with... If you're a son or a daughter, you don't have to ask in that way. Now, as a son or a daughter, you still have to rely on the wisdom of the parents. But it's not like you've got to talk God into something because you proved your worth of it. Your worth of it. Because he's already said you're worth of it. You're, you're worthy of it. He paid the redemption price. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He was a man born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted. And it fundamentally changes everything about our relationship with him. Anybody here watch the royal wedding What's yesterday, Friday morning? Some, some of you crazy people. Um, I was up at 2 o'clock in the morning, but I wasn't watching that. I was trying to get back to sleep. Um, but it was a real interesting fact. I didn't, I didn't know this, um, but I was reading about it. That um, Kate, that's Kate? Yeah, okay. So um, she came to the cathedral not in the royal carriage. Did you know this? I, I, this was fascinating to me. She wasn't allowed to ride in the royal carriage because she wasn't royalty. She was a commoner. She had to ride in a Rolls Royce. Oh, yeah, I know. I think I'd choose the Rolls Royce over the carriage any day. But anyway, she couldn't come in the royal carriage because she wasn't royalty. She was a commoner. So she had to come just in a car. But when she left, she left as royalty. Left and went back to Buckingham Palace in the royal coach. Now, that is just such a beautiful picture that we come to Christ commoners, servants, slaves. But in Him, changes everything. We are now His sons and His daughters. Royalty in His eyes. Dearly loved, fully forgiven, heartily welcomed and embraced. That's the relationship that Christ has given to us. And if you want to settle for religion, man, you don't know what you're missing. He says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba, that, that's Hebrew. And, and it's, it's, it's the simplest expression. It's one of the first words that a baby learns to say. It means daddy, papa. It, it, it is the cry of the young child, one of the first words. It is an intimate acceptance word. And he says, God has put the spirit of Christ himself, God's spirit within us, so that we cry out to him in the most intimate of ways. Papa, Father. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God is sometimes described as a a father. And there's a fatherhood analogy that's used often in the Old Testament. But nowhere in the Old Testament is, is anyone, does anyone refer to him and, him and call him Father. That didn't come till Jesus. Jesus was the first one that taught us to pray our Father in heaven. Because in Jesus, the relationship changed. And one thing I've learned now after 30 years as a dad, 
I will never stop being a dad. Kids are grown, married, got their own lives now, but I'm still the one they call when they need that. And so it's an expression of a little child, and yet it's the same expression that my kids use to me to this day. They don't call me Ken. Call me Daddy. Daddy, can you do this? Dad, can you help with that? You know? <laughs> he says, that's the relationship. That's what Christ has given us. Gene Peterson sums it up really, really well in his book, Traveling Light. He says, understand the relationship. He says, we are still aware of the majesty and the awesomeness of God. We do not reduce God to a level of coziness where we can manipulate him. But on the other hand, he says, understand, faith is not a formal relationship hedged in with elaborate courtesies. It is a family relationship, intimate and free. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.